Lord, we thank you that today we can know that love is defined not by how, how strongly we're holding on to you or our grip on you, but love is defined by your grip on us and how, how strong you hold us, Lord. So we thank you for that truth, Lord, the gospel song that your love is holding us fast. And it's your love that we want to see as we open up your word. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would come and open up our eyes to see and open up our ears to hear and open up our hearts to obey everything that you would have us to, to see and hear and to obey in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, my name is Rob. If we've not met before, Rob Tombrella, I'm one of the uh, pastors at a church in uh, North Dallas in Frisco. And many of you I met uh, last hour at the Bible study time where we talked about uh, marriages uh, through the eyes of friendship. And now I get the privilege of, uh, of getting to know all of you. And I've uh, been here several years ago, and, and there's new faces here. So it's just a joy to be back, to be invited back on a very special marriage emphasis uh, weekend and a marriage emphasis Sunday. And just want to say thank you. Thank you, uh, church, for uh, having me back. Thank you, Pastor Justin and the other elders uh, for inviting me as well. So thank you so very much. Uh, I have been married for 23 years to my wonderful and beautiful uh, wife who is sitting to my left right over here, Michelle. And uh, we have three kids who are also with us in this service. Samuel, who's 18, Joel, who's 17, and Asher, who is 14. And they're over there sitting with, the, sitting with their friends. And I've been uh, a pastor really of only two churches, one, one of a, a church near Lake Whitney uh, for a few years. And then I went and worked in the marketplace for a few years. And then I've been at uh, the church that I'm currently at called Grace Church uh, for about 18 years. And uh, that's pretty, uh, it seems like a long time. I mean, last session, uh, Justin mentioned that we've been friends for 25 years. And I did, you know, I just did this thing going, that's, that's a quarter of a century. And that's a really long time. And uh, so I'm getting older and I'm just, uh, you know, some of you are like, oh, come on, that's just 25 years. I have, you know, friends for 50 years or whatever. So Anyway, uh, but I was going, man, that's been a while, uh, and so praise God. So anyway, I'm just so, so glad to be here today, and we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, which is a familiar passage, especially when we're talking about marriages and roles of husbands and, uh, and wives, and I'm sure you've been taught this and taught this well by your pastors, and um, we're going to review this together. Uh, Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. I mentioned I have teenagers, and in North Dallas, the way that we check grades is online. Everything's online, right? And so it's called Home Access Center. Do you guys have this in Belton? Home Access Center, your version of it, your equivalent of it, or maybe it's just everybody uses, everybody uses Hack here. Uh, well, that's what we use. It's called Home Access Center, and this is how you, you can spy on the grades of your kids constantly is through the Home Access Center. The short, short version is hack, which is just an unfortunate word. Uh, I'm constantly asking my kids, have you checked hack? Go look at your hack. I'm looking at your hack. I'm going to go find your hack and check out your hack and look at your grades and see how things are. In fact, I do a lot of work with students at our church, and I, I tell them, hey, I saw your hack today, 
And they look at me like, how do you have the passwords? I say, your parents give me the login and the passwords. I look at all your grades, which is not true, but I love to freak them out and do that kind of thing with them. It's not true. I look at my kids' grades, though, all the time, and I'm constantly checking hack because uh, I want to know where their grades are. And so here's my experience personally as I've looked at Ephesians 5 and as I've taught this over the years and I've interacted with married people over Ephesians 5 uh, for many, many years is we get to verses 22 through 33 and what we do is we evaluate the entire uh, passage based on how well we're doing and we grade ourselves. It's like we go into Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 checking our hack and going into our home access center and grading ourselves and seeing how we're doing on all of these things. Instead of taking a step back and not grading ourselves uh, first, but looking at what the whole passage is about and the beauty of what it tells us about God and his love for us in Jesus Christ. And so what I want to encourage you to do before we get into this passage is to look at this with fresh eyes and to not check hack. I want to encourage you for just a few minutes together to suspend the self-evaluation and the introspection and the temptation to size yourself up, to grade yourself high or low on how you're doing on the rolls, to look at your spouse and to check her hack and to grade her or to grade him on how well he or she is doing. But just to look at this with fresh eyes, I want to encourage you to really try as best you can by the Spirit of Christ to stare at one thing only. And that's the objective love that God has for us in Christ in the context of marriage, which is what the Apostle Paul's burden is, I believe, when he gets to this part of the letter. He's being very practical, but for chapters before this, he has talked about the insurmountable and amazing grace and love that God has for us. And then he starts to talk about how to apply this love in our everyday relationships. And he includes singles, and he includes employees, and he includes married people as well. So what I want us to do is look at this through the love that God has for us. So behind me on the screen or in front of you, you've got your Bibles open, Ephesians 5. Uh, he starts with wives. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands, ask to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, 
And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So I want to encourage you to suspend all self-grading. Look at this through the lens of God's love. And what does this tell us about the kind of love that God has for us? Well, I think that we see three things about God's love in this passage. And there's three big words I want you to hold on to. One is that His love is unrelenting. Two is that His love is extravagant. And three, His love is immeasurable. Unrelenting, extravagant, and immeasurable. Let's first look at His unrelenting love through the first section. So he starts with wives. He's going to talk about both spouses here. But he starts with wives. He says, submit to your own husbands. And then he says this really important word, as to the Lord. The Lord is primary. The husband is only secondary. Submit to him as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife. And he gives this illustration. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, submit does not mean obey in every circumstance that he would require. It just means simply to yield insofar as it's reasonable and, you know, you're not sinning or doing anything that is outside of your conscience or outside of God's law. That's what sin is. Sin is breaking God's law. And so it's obviously not, not yielding in that way. It's insofar as it's reasonable to do so. Have an attitude of yielding and an attitude of submission, which I know is a really challenging word in these days. But notice, notice why. It's, it's, not, it's not connected to his authority. It's connected to who Christ is. Christ is the head of the church. He leads the church. That's what headship means. It doesn't mean that you're domineering. It certainly doesn't mean that because a domineering attitude is forbidden in other passages in the New Testament. It means that you lead. You lead with love. And that's what Christ does. He leads with love, and the church is called his body. He's like the eyes and the ears. He's the head, and we are his body. And he is himself its savior. He is the one who rescues the bride. He is the one who leads the bride, cares for the bride, lays his life down for the bride, and is himself its savior. So he gets the glory of being the one who rescues the bride from peril. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he cares about us. And he has this exclusive claim on us because he has done that. So the good news, and I know you hear this every week, but we're going to say it again today. The good news is that, that something has been done. Gospel is done. Gospel is not due. Gospel is something has happened to us and for us. And that's what Jesus has done. He has rescued us from evil and from the bondage of sin by his own blood. When I was in uh, college, I had broken up with this wonderful gal, and her name is Michelle, and she's sitting right over here to my left. We had dated, uh, we had broken up, and um, she had befriended another gal named Gina, Gina Adams, and uh, Michelle and Gina were hanging out, and they were friends. Justin and I were also friends. And um, 
Justin, you know, he's kind of was this like leader of our college group. And so he sort of declared a holy fast. Like we all need to start the year off by fasting. And at this point, we're just kind of all friends. There's no, there's no formal, you know, dating relationship here. But Gina and Justin are getting kind of chummy. And <laughs> I'm getting kind of uncomfortable because she's like taking away my best friend. And I don't really like this. Uh, she's hanging around a lot, like they're, she's helping him study and stuff, and I'm, I'm like, you need to, you know, we're doing this single thing, we're living for the kingdom here, and uh, anyway, then, and then Gina and Michelle start to build a friendship, they start to get to know each other, and I just need to confess something, here's, here's how proud I am, uh, I'm still this, this proud sometimes, I was so, I was so proud in college, I, here's, here's the thing, I'm just going to, I assumed Gina and Michelle were building a friendship because Michelle just wanted to get to me. (laughs) Guys, I was so convinced that this was the reality. They couldn't possibly be building their own friendship on their own. She was just, this girl that I had broken up with trying to get to me. And so I was suspicious of this friendship, right? In my pride. I feel like I'm, you're judging me. Are you judging me? I don't feel loved right now. I'm just teasing, by the way. Um, so anyway, Justin declared, declared like this holy fast. Like we all need to get together and uh, as college students and we need to pray through the year. I was like, that's super spiritual and super awesome. And who does that kind of thing? Well, Justin did that kind of thing all the time. And that's why I was like always following him around, like, that's crazy, awesome, let's do this, let's, let's call a fast, so we get all the college students together, we, we, uh, we prayed, we prayed through the year, uh, we did all kinds of cool stuff, but then we were going to break the fast, right, the next day by going and eating Tex-Mex, which is an awesome idea, right, like, that's a great way to end a fast. By the way, I had Corona's last uh, night. And some of, you, some of y'all are going to go eat that this afternoon probably. But phenomenal. Y'all have great Tex-Mex here in Belton. Okay? The burrito is so, so good. That was our date night. We went and had double dates with uh, Justin and Gina. So we go to have, to have this Tex-Mex. And this gal who I had broken up with uh, named Michelle started uh, talking to this guy who was a waiter. And he was, started to flirt with Michelle. And, uh, and she, she, wasn't, she wasn't totally repulsed by this guy. <laughs> he wasn't a bad-looking guy. And I felt, and here's the thing, it was this, I felt very disoriented in that moment, and I felt this odd claim on this gal that I'd broken up with as this guy's kind of throwing something down, and she's kind of picking it up just a little bit, just, just a touch, you know, um, and uh, I, I didn't like this guy at all. I mean, if I can be honest, in my flesh, I just kind of wanted to hurt the guy. And I, I'm like, where's that? Is that okay for me to say that? I still feel judged. Um, and uh, I just wanted to hurt the guy, man. There, something, something rose up in me. I'm like, who's this guy? And, and this weird, holy, well, actually it was unholy, this unholy thing went on in my heart saying, I... Uh, have a claim on this gal 
named Michelle. And something in me was almost like, get away from my wife. She's mine. And I felt this claim, but here's the, the reality was, I had no covenant. I had no, I had no covenant. I had no commitment and to have these feelings uh, for her. I felt a claim, but I had no covenant. But at the cross, what Paul is telling us is that Christ has both. He has completed a covenant for us as head of the church, his body. He is himself its savior. And not only does he have this commitment over his bride, but he feels that claim on us every single day as he says to evil and darkness, get away from my wife. She's mine. And I love her and I've purchased her and I've rescued her. Over and over again, the Apostle Paul tries to, or does spell out this kind of love that God has for us. Like consider Romans 8. I know you're in the book of Romans it's like journeying up the mountain of, of uh, it's an incredible mountain. When you get to Romans 8, it's like looking out at the peaks of God's love for us. And he says this, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, Jesus has married himself to us and he's claimed us and he feels the claim every day and wants us to enter into that every single day through the gospel by rehearsing the gospel we step into the uh, love that God has for us so consider that he saves us from everything and he does this so completely because nothing separates us from his love that we are called to submit to him in everything and so the whole context for this, this submission, why submit to your husband is the idea that insofar as it's reasonable, think of it in terms of our submission to a complete Savior who loves us with this unrelenting love, this unrelenting claim on us. It never goes away. He never stops feeling this claim over us in such a perfect, such a complete, such an unrelenting way. And so we should bask in that. We should celebrate that. God, you love me. You, you care about me. And it's, it's never going to stop. Uh, consider it's extravagance. Not only is this love unrelenting, Paul talks about it being extravagant. He says in verse 25, he switches to husbands now. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ, notice, loved the church and gave himself up for her. So his love moved him to doing the unimaginable, the overflowing, the extravagant, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So notice, these are past tense events. He gave himself up. Something has been done. Something has been accomplished. That's what the good news is. The good news is something's been done not something that you need to go do and something you need to accomplish for God. The gospel is a celebration of what Jesus has done. What's he done? Well, he gave himself up. And we sung it earlier. That's an atoning sacrifice. An atoning, an atoning sacrifice is where two parties who are at war, who are enemies uh, by themselves, are brought together and are 
put at peace, even put into a loving relationship through an atoning sacrifice. And the only way that that works is through a transfer. Guilt has to be transferred from the guilty party to the innocent person or the innocent lamb. And the transfer had to happen the other way. The innocence of the sacrifice had to be transferred over to the guilt of the worshiper. That transfer had to take place among the people of God every day. There always had to be a transfer. There were daily atoning sacrifices. There were weekly and monthly and annual atoning sacrifices because you had to, this constant transfer of guilt and innocence in order to make peace with God so that we can meet with God and so that God can meet with us. Their whole calendar orbited around transferring guilt and transferring innocence. And that's why it's so important in John chapter 3, where in, God, in John's gospel, the good news, you see John the Baptist pointing to Jesus saying, here's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world in a complete, perfect, extravagant way. And then you see that same gospel, the very last words that Jesus says on the cross, if you remember, is it is finished. In other words, I have taken away the sin and the guilt of the world in my death. The very last thing that I am saying to everybody watching is it is complete. It is finished. Now, consider how extravagant this atoning sacrifice is. Consider how extravagant it is that Jesus, to show his love, to his bride would give himself up as the atoning sacrifice, as the very Lamb of God. He does all of this so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. In other words, he does it and it has an effect. He has made us splendor. He has made us without spot. He has made us without wrinkle or any such thing. We come in here very aware of all our wrinkles. Very aware of all of our spots, very aware that there's nothing splendorous about me. I'm a broken person and I am a sinner. But in Christ, in this atoning work that Jesus has done, in the justifying work that Jesus has done, this cleansing work that he has done, we are, in his eyes, people of splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing that we might be holy and without blemish. This is the kind of extravagant love that Jesus feels for us right now. So he goes on in verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. <laughs> that makes sense. If you want to love yourself, you love your spouse. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Notice, just as Christ does the church. Christ nourishes the church. He cherishes the church. He loves us in this way because we're members of his body. He's connected himself to us. We are joined to him in this mysterious spiritual union. We are in Christ, in this eternal bond with Christ. We're members of his body. And nobody's ever not cherished their body. Nobody's ever not nourished their body. So Christ never stops nourishing us. He never stops cherishing us because we're members of his body. Now Jesus talked about this himself. And he loved to tell stories. How many of you love stories? Love stories. I love movies. I love stories. My wife's a librarian. I better love stories. 
she, uh, she's reading stories all the time. I love stories. And when Jesus wanted to get a point across, he would do it often through a story. And when he really, really, really wanted to get a point across, sometimes he would stack the stories. Have you ever done this with your kids? You ever stack a story? Let me describe a story this way, and then you do it another way, and you do it another way. Jesus does this in Luke 15 to talk about the extravagant love that God has for us. He says this. Here's what his love's like. It's like a shepherd who leaves the 99 to go pursue the lost sheep. And then he says this in the first story. When he's found it, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and he says to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. The sheep strayed, but he rescued the sheep because he went and pursued the sheep. And then when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing, then calls a party together, calls a celebration and says, hey, everybody, rejoice with me because I found what was lost. I found my sheep. He goes on to the next story. It's like this. Here's what God's extravagant love's like. It's like this woman who loses a coin and sweeps the house trying to find this coin. Now, if you can't relate to a coin and you've got teenagers or preteens, just think of beats. You lose those beats, you're going to sweep the house trying to find them. Or you're going to tell your kid to sweep the house to try to find them. Well, she, that was her equivalent. A coin was lost, a valuable coin was lost. She sweeps the house. Jesus says, when she found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, which is kind of an odd thing to do when you find a coin, but she does it. And she says the same thing the shepherd says. Rejoice with me, for I've found the coin that I lost. She throws a party. And she requires joy. And then he tells yet another story. And this story almost everybody's heard about. The prodigal son. He goes to his father. He says, give me everything that I have coming to me when you're dead now. And the father says, okay. And what does he do with it? He blows it in a week. He spends it all. He ends up in the worst possible predicament. He has thrown away his inheritance. He has thrown away everything that he had. And he comes to this place where he's eating pig slop or about to, and he says, I'm just going to go back home and ask to be a slave, not a servant. I can't be a son anymore. I've blown it. But maybe he'll take me back as a servant or as a slave. So he starts heading back. He finds the father. And he says, the son says to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Rejoice with me, the father says. He says, for this son 
was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. In every situation, he had some, something valuable that was lost. And it was valuable to the shepherd. And it was valuable to the woman. And it was valuable to the father. And the love pursues what was lost. And when that love finds what is lost, there's celebration and there's rejoicing. Not just in the one that's found, but in the finder. The one who finds what's lost requires the celebration, requires the rejoicing. And notice, Jesus says, Jesus says, they began to celebrate. That's the kind of extravagant, prodigal, that's what that word means. Prodigal means extravagant. And that's the kind of love that God has for us. This is why William Tyndale, when he, when he translated the word evangelion, which is the word for gospel, good news, he says evangelion makes a man, his word maketh, I like that language, uh, evangelion maketh a man's heart glad, makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. Because when we catch sight of it, and it's a special thing when we catch sight of it. And when we hear, when we can hear the music going on in the celebration, even if it's just for a moment, it makes our heart leap for joy. And it makes it glad. And it makes it sing. And his words makes it dance and leap for joy. It's a special thing when the Holy Spirit opens up our eyes and we just catch a glimpse Sometimes it only takes a second, but we catch a glimpse. Maybe we heard a song, but we get a glimpse. We're hearing a message, we get a glimpse. Somebody shows grace to us, and we get a glimpse. It's a powerful thing when the Holy Spirit does that. I wonder if even right now, the Lord is giving somebody or some folks in here a glimpse. Can you hear the music of heaven right now? Because music isn't just something that we do here as we worship. Music is actually coming from the Father over His children. For Jesus says there's joy before the angels of God over sinners who repent and come home to Him. When I was uh, also in college, I'm, pur I'm purposely sharing stories about Justin and Gina when we were in college because I feel like you need to know your pastor and your pastor's wife. Uh, Justin and I were in a Spanish class, Spanish class together. Anybody really good at Spanish in here? Anybody ever take a Spanish class? Anybody not so great at Spanish? I can relate to you. <laughs> Actually, Justin and I can both relate to you because we were in the Spanish class together and uh, we were just trying to get through Spanish. It was the same semester that in October, Justin and Gina were going to get married, and I was going to do that wedding. And then in December, same semester, I, Michelle and I are getting married, and Justin was going to do that, that ceremony, that, that wedding uh, as well. And so, man, we were busy with wedding plans all semester long, and what's next in our life? And we just didn't have time for Spanish, or at least we didn't think we did. And so we were just every day going to our Spanish class, just trying to make it, just trying to pass, frankly. And man, we had one person who sat uh, one seat in front of Justin who was just helping us get by in Spanish. Her name was Gina Adams. And Gina was, 
was helping us a lot. I'm not saying she cheated. I'm just saying she helped us a lot. A lot. She helped us a lot. Too much, probably. Anyway, now she helped us a ton, and we, we were just barely passing. We get to the end of the semester, and uh, the professor's name was uh, Mr. Polycarpo. He was one of those teachers that requires you to speak in Spanish, and you know, he asks you to read certain things, and you're just counting the desks of what is coming up and hoping that you time it right as you're practicing, and then he throws it off, and it drives you crazy. And he was a very intimidating guy. So if you, ta- if, you, if you ran into him in the hallway or something like that, he was just really tall and just strong and muscular and scary and uh, required you to speak in Spanish to him. And he was just very intimidating, at least to me. And so we get to the end of the semester. We've got one final grade. I think Gina's doing fine. Justin and I are on the bubble, man. We're like, I think we're passing, but it's like a 70. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you, you're just... This final is super important to pass this, really, really important. Uh, we need to do well. Otherwise, we're retaking this next semester, and we don't have time for that. We need to move on. And we, you know, Justin and I are both, we've got to pass this final. So we study, study, study. We get it. We, we see it. Our hearts sink the moment we see this test because it is just one of those tests that's it's a killer. Uh, we're done for. We do our very best on this test. But we walked out of that test saying, see you next semester. Uh, we are retaking this Spanish course. I think Gina did fine. We, but we, we said we'll, we'll, we'll be in this class next semester together. Then Justin calls me, maybe a week later, a few days later, and says, I passed. I passed. I don't have to retake it. And I'm kind of happy for him, but I'm upset because I know I didn't pass. Because I'm, well, I, I guess I'm taking it by myself. And uh, then I got my grade, and I passed. And I'm telling you what, I think in that little apartment that Michelle and I was in, you know, uh, I just leaped for joy. I just sang, I just shouted, you know, I don't know where I was, but wherever I was, I was just overjoyed at the prospect that I had passed Spanish, I'm moving on, and um, that I got a, a, a passing grade. And so we got, you know, married. Uh, this was December that we had the, the, the final. Got married just a couple of weeks after that. The next semester rolls around. I'm walking through the hallway, and Mr. Polycarpo, I was with Justin at the time, just out of nowhere interrupts us and says, Mr. Tombrella. And I'm startled and scared of the guy. And I say, uh, yes, uh, hello. He said, uh, you got married. I said, yes, sir, I did. Yes, just a couple weeks ago. He said, how did you like your wedding gift? <laughs> and I'm slow. I'm not quick on my feet. So I'm literally thinking, did he give me a toaster and I forgot about it? <laughs> what did Mr. Polycarpo give me? And he, d- he just says, your grade. <laughs> and I said... I liked it very much. Thank you, Mr. Polycarpo. <laughs> I'm grateful for that grade. And it was a wedding gift. He graded me on a curve. I'm not saying he cheated either. But he graded me on a curve. A significant, profound, mysterious curve that caused me, when I heard about it, to jump up and down as if I'd done something. 
I didn't do anything. He graded me on a curve. My celebration and my rejoicing and my joy and my shouting was because Polycarpo graded me on a curve and he interrupted me to tell me that he did so. And I think maybe, just maybe, the Lord wants to interrupt somebody today and remind you that He's grading you on a curve. And He's grading you on His extravagant grace. And He's given you a glimpse of it today. We're hearing God say, Rejoice with me. I found what's lost. I've paid your debts. I'm grading you on the curve of the cross. So celebrate this extravagant mercy and extravagant love. Husbands, love your wives that way, is what Paul's saying. Love your wives with this kind of extravagant joy and grace. Greater on a curve. Greater on the curve of the cross. Consider how immeasurable, lastly, and we're done. Consider how immeasurable. Notice verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become, notice, one flesh. This mystery is profound. The way that that's translated in the Greek is simply this secret, this open secret, is big. It's boundless. It's immeasurable. It's towering. This mystery is towering. It's immeasurable. And I'm saying, he says, it refers to Christ and the church. This is what God's love is. It's immeasurable. This is why in 1 John 4 we're told, so we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. This is to see the gospel, to understand the gospel, it's to see objectively the love that God has for us and to come not only to a place where we see it, but where we know it and we lean into it and we believe it. In his book, Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel, Ray Orland says, every time a bride and groom stand there and they take their vows, they're reenacting the biblical love story, whether they realize it or not. The Son of God stepping down out of eternity, entering time, taking on flesh, pursuing and winning His bride as His very heart and body with His inmost, sincerest love so that He can fit her to be with Him forever above. That dramatic super-reality is the breathtaking reason why human marriage exists. It is truly profound. And Christian married couples have the privilege of making the mystery of the gospel visible in the world today by living out the dynamic interplay of an Ephesians 5 quality marriage. We should not think that Christ and the church are the metaphor in this passage, but the reverse. Christ and the church are the reality of realities. And our Christian marriages are the metaphor. So again, this is Marriage is a metaphor of some amazing spiritual union that Jesus Christ has purchased and bought at the cross and, and now is being lived out like a drama or like a play in front of the watching world. And this is why the purpose of, of all of this is not that you know, people get married. Marriage is a gift. But it can also be demonstrated uh, just as well through singles who are not married and who are... Uh, called to serve in other ways. He says, uh, he closes out, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that he respects her husband. So here he just summarizes. How do you actually do this? Well, in summary, wives, as a gift unto the Lord, as if it's to the Lord, submit, respect, 
is probably the best way to understand that. Respect in a submissive way. Not obey, yield so far as it's reasonable. He mentions that three times. But then husbands, as a gift, love, cherish, nourish as you would your own body. The way that Christ nourishes. The way that He cherishes us. The last quote I want to share is Orland says, For Paul, the practical demonstration of the gospel in our marriages comes down to love and respect. His love for her, with her respect for him, will display the eternal romance of Christ and the church, bringing the only lasting hope that exists into a broken-hearted year, broken-hearted world. Um, Michelle and I have shared recently just with each other and then with friends, some married, some single, that we, this has been a hard year. You ever have a year where the circumstances aren't like the hardest circumstances, but for whatever reason you're having a hard year? And we shared recently that we've had something of a hard year. And it, I don't know, it's one of those things where a cloud comes. You don't know what the cloud's about. You don't know why you've got this cloud over you, but it's just there. And you don't know when the cloud's going to go away. I don't know if anybody can relate to that, but that was, Michelle and I have shared that we've had something of a year like that. Not the worst cloud ever, just kind of a cloud. We can't always put our finger on why that is or what that is, but we've had that. And um, some of you are going through a year like that, maybe a month like that or something. Some of you, maybe since COVID, in the past few years, you've had sort of a cloud and you're living with some brokenhearted things in your life. And, uh, and the solution to a broken heart is not to just go inward and try to fix yourself. It's to look outside of that place of brokenness and to realize that there's a sun beyond that cloud. And that sun that's shining just beyond that cloud is the gospel of God's extravagant, immeasurable love for us. Imagine the, the hope that could come it may be a broken-hearted year for you if you came to know and believe the love that God has for you. Imagine the difference that your marriage could be if you're related to your spouse with a little bit of this extravagant, immeasurable love that God has for us. So I just want to encourage you, lastly, with one final thing. It's just an assignment for, for everybody. Married people, single people. Here's the assignment. Um, husbands, on your next date night, okay, ask your wife, I think we have it on the screen behind me, there you go. Uh, ask your wife, sweetheart, or, or whatever you want to call her. <laughs> Not whatever you want to call her, let me back that up. <laughs> Well, I just lost everybody right there. I'll see myself out. Uh, ask her, what's one small way I could show you that I cherish you? Um, prepare for this, okay? You need to prepare for this. I have a pastor friend of mine who says, when you ask questions like that, don't go to the steakhouse, go to Denny's. Because it might not go like you want it to go. You might not hear what you want to hear. And so you don't need to spend the kind of money that you're thinking that you need to spend. Or maybe you do need to do the steakhouse. I don't know. 
Uh, but here, if you haven't done, if you didn't do the date night last night, if you didn't get to some of these questions last night, man, some of y'all might have been arguing for the first 20 minutes of your date night because y'all haven't had a date night in a while and you're asking some of these questions and, uh, and it didn't go as great as you want. So think it through. And uh, when you ask the question, husbands, here's what you're not allowed to do. You're not allowed to say anything. You're not allowed to respond. You're not allowed to defend you're not allowed to do, to, to do anything. You're just going to ask the question and listen to anything that she says in terms of how you could better cherish her. And you're going to let her go and talk as much as you want to talk. And if the whole date night is just hearing how I need to cherish you more or better, I'm going to listen. I'm not going to defend. I'm not going to get upset. I'm not going to grunt. I'm not going to fold my arms or do this or go to the bathroom five times. I'm going to listen, okay? So that's your assignment. If you still have time, if you still have time in the same night, or if, if this needs to be separate, it can be, wives, ask your husband, what's one small way I could respect you? And your, your uh, assignment is to say nothing. It's just to listen. Don't defend yourself. Don't say, I already do that. I did that last week. I did that yesterday. Don't just listen. Just listen and, uh, and hear what he has to say. Singles, listen. What's one small way you can express this love of God, this extravagant, unrelenting love of God to someone in your life right now that God's called you to either love or respect, to honor? Think of somebody in your life that you're called to do that with. Maybe you get with another single in the church and you hold each other accountable to acting on anything that the Lord would put on your heart to do. So I'm done. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that, that the love that, that we're being called to look at in Ephesians 5 is not an evaluation of ourselves and our love. It's actually helping us look beyond our weak love for one another to your perfect love for us at the cross. In the cross and in the resurrection and in your ascension, Jesus, you are loving us. You have a claim on us. And you feel that claim every day. And you love us with an immeasurable and, and an, an extravagant and an unrelenting love for us. And as we move into a time of taking the Lord's Supper, that's what this all points to all points to this object of love for us. So help us to see it, to believe it, and to know it. To come to know and believe the love that God has for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rob. So we prepared to transition. Uh, such a great message.